I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. Resuming our recent discussions on dis and misinformation, we're delighted to welcome Ali Breland, who reports on tech and viral deception for Mother Jones magazine. Breland covers internet culture and its impact on society, including race and politics, and has also appeared in The Guardian, Vice, and on NPR and CNN. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. One of the most fascinating things that you've written about recently is the efforts to de-radicalize uh, the far right on um, online platforms where they have been culpable for spreading not just uh, innuendo and dis and misinformation, but often the origin of extremist hate and violence, most recently in Germany, but it's happened often in the United States. Can you tell our viewers about where this de-radicalization is occurring? Yeah, absolutely. So to start, the radicalization occurred on the traditional platforms. People found uh, radical content on places like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. And uh, there's this newer platform that's kind of lesser known. It's called Twitch, and it's a video game streaming platform. Um, the the quote-unquote normies don't really know about it, but uh, gamers are very familiar. It has a very surprisingly large uh, viewership in, in the millions and the tens of millions. Um, and you'd expect gamers to, to be sort of libertarian or far-right. Um, Gamergate was this important moment in their culture where they had a big harassment campaign against women and against social progress in the gaming industry. Um, and so gamers have this reputation for being uh, sort of right-wing trolls. Um, but there's this sort of constellation of Twitch streamers who are fairly high profile, who are progressive, um, some are socialists or outright leftists, who are trying to uh, sort of win over the hearts and minds of gamers and, and sort of de-radicalize these people who are far right. And so the most prominent one um, that I've spoken with is this guy named Destiny, who's a streamer. There's others like Hassan Piker, who's also a, a host on the Young Turks. <laughs> excuse me, and uh, this, this streamer named Trihex, and um, they basically just sit down and try to push their own uh, progressive arguments and try to debunk a lot of right-wing conspiracies. Destiny's particularly interesting because he'll go and debate white nationals, he'll debate far-right figures, um, and that has a surprising effect. In addition to just challenging these people's ideas, he's getting his name in the YouTube algorithm against someone like Lauren Southern's name, who's a, a known white nationalist. So you search Lauren Southern, if his video doesn't come up on the first page, it'll eventually come up in the recommendation algorithm. And you'll see not just Lauren Southern's ideas, but her ideas challenged and interrogated by someone who's like really adept at tackling um, the sort of dangerous hoaxes she, she paddles about, um, things like white replacement and things like that. Is this de-radicalization occurring in dialogue on the platform, at least initially in chat rooms while folks are gaming and not in person? A little bit. Um, so it's hard to say. I mean, if anything, some of the radicalization is probably being reinforced there. And then it's sort of changing when these people go and watch these streams. And then these, stream, these streamers like Destiny and Hassan and Trihex uh, have very devout and passionate followers who are going out to other platforms, presumably, and, and arguing with other people and doing some de-radicalization efforts on their own. But does, it, does the de-radicalization of that opening dialogue, yeah. does it start with a video just as the radicalization? Or is it linking up initially and beginning conversations in chat rooms on these platforms or other platforms? It doesn't really start necessarily with meeting in person. Yeah. 
uh, and I'm wondering because technology has been a at fault in a lot of instances for um, giving weapons to the arsonists, is, is this playing out in, in reverse or at least in some corrective measure where you can start having a conversation with someone in, in a sort of more peaceful or non-violent context? Yeah, totally. It's facilitating both of those things in every avenue. It's, it's important to note, too, that um, a lot of this is anecdotal, and there's a, a lot of good anecdotal evidence, but like we don't have data that firmly shows us that this is like doing a tremendous job, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that suggests this is definitely the case. But yeah, no, it's definitely fostering these kinds of communications all online and, and reversing the course in this kind of radicalization. I mean, ha have there been forensic analyses of the platforms so that we can say with authority now that the opposite is not anecdotal. In other words, the radicalization shouldn't be understood as anecdotal anymore. Yes. It, is, it is a scientific fact that the preponderance of hate occurs on these platforms and leads to, in some cases, massacre. Yeah, that's, that's been uh, pretty established by a lot of researchers. One of the, the preeminent researchers in the space who's written about it is Becca Lewis, who did a really, really good study breaking down how um, radicalization pipelines occur. Other people have, have gone, um, Bellingcat, for example, the uh, open source um, website, uh, investigations website has done a really good job. They did a, this study of 75 different um, extremists and tracked their progress from places like the YouTube set, uh, comments of YouTube videos for Alex Jones videos through their uh, introductions to Reddit, through their introductions to far-right message boards on, on websites like 4chan and 8chan. So it's been well documented and there's a lot of substantial data that shows that radicalization is definitely occurring um, through these tech platforms. Gaming, just like they say about sports, can be a moral bridge and, and, and a kind of healer. Um, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, we thought of the, the gaming culture as being an underbelly that may prompt people to actually enact violence. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, you know, the research now can establish the opposite, that in many cases, psychologically and morally, it's tempered any sort of desire to physically harm people. In terms of it being a positive force, I would say that that's like, that could definitely be the case. The research firmly shows though that uh, at the very least, it's not the force that we thought it was in the 90s. At, at worst, gaming is just neutral and doesn't like have an impact, but at best, yeah, it's a, it's a really good release for people. Um, but it's also important too to, to think about gaming, not just as like an entity within its own, but like, a community and so when you have a community of people who have ingratiated their voices in certain ways and become more powerful their words go further and so destiny is a much more valuable source for de-radicalization than like you or me going on twitch and trying to talk about things because to a lot of these gamers you and i are these these normie like shills who just hang out and we're not a part of their community <laughs> destiny is a gamer he's one of them he's extremely good at warcraft and so what he says in that community goes way further than anything anyone else could say Ali, I feel like I'm immersed in an episode of Mr. Robot right now <laughs> with, with the names you're saying and just uh, this conversation. Do you need me to explain normies for... You can, yeah, oh, please. Sure. Normies. Yeah. Normies is a, it's, it's, it's an internet slang that's like, I think maybe started in the far right, but has been co-opted universally. And it's like someone who is a normie is a person who is like, it's equivalent to another slang word, basic, where it's like you are a very normative person. You like to go to Starbucks and you uh, like normal brands and things like that. You watch <laughs> The Office and like you like good general things. Whereas like if you're not a normie, you're deep in the recesses of the internet, you like weird things, you're an edgy person. Well, I don't go to Starbucks, 
But I think I still am a normie. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I don't like the, I haven't really watched The Office, but there are shows that, like The West Wing, you could say. That's more normie <laughs> I, territory. But, but I think what's going on in Twitch is an interesting example, because you were talking to me about our episodes with the executive directors of the Wikimedia Foundation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have described to our viewers how that Wikimedia and Wikipedia are the exception to the rule of incentives that are striking at the heart of democracy or civil society. And, you know, what Destiny is doing, that is, that is a corrective course that, uh, you know, is sort of the MO of a Wikipedia where we want to engage people with, with content. Now, it's behind closed doors, and the moderators are not in discussion with the readers. But I'm, I'm wondering how folks like Destiny can integrate more fully into an algorithm or incentive system that is better because we know that the alphabets, YouTube, Twitter, Facebooks, have corrupted uh, us and, and society in, in a way that's been unhealthy. So, you know, I'm just spitballing here, but wondering how Destiny and Wikipedia, or at least those incentives, mm -hmm. can hook up. Yeah, definitely. Normie. That's like... <laughs> That's a hard question to answer. Destiny, in some ways, is taking advantage of uh, the arguably perverse ways that these platforms operate in. So he's like operating like they all these platforms are trying to attract our eyeballs for as long as they possibly can. And so that creates an incentive where you're going to produce very, very polemic content. And uh, the right wing figured out that that was very easy for them to do to gain a lot of eyeballs and uh, that YouTube was going to prioritize their content because it was very polemic. Um, and so Destiny figured out how to do the inverted left version of that and is sort of using it, using this own weapon uh, against uh, the far right, against extremists. Um, but I personally am inclined to believe that even though Destiny is doing, and Hassan Piker and Trihex are doing um, really useful, thoughtful things, um, and it's important to, yeah, they're, they're doing useful and important things, but. They're doing a public service. They are, but I think that the ultimate answer isn't in these guys doing one-off things where they're, they're de-radicalizing people. I think the ultimate answer is in restructuring platforms the way that Wikipedia works, where you don't have um, these sort of perverse incentives to produce hyper-polemic content that might or might not be true. You're just creating a fully actual democratized system where there is not an algorithm prioritizing certain types of content. The best information just wins out naturally because there's no secret algorithm guiding everything. Right. And the, we've talked about this. You were alluding to the, a piece I wrote in Wired where mm. greed is not prolific and isn't the dominant incentive. How can we strive for any even small molecule of the system that you're describing when mm. we're in a climate that allows YouTube and, and YouTube's decision makers to say to the Trump campaign, which they have as of this recording, Come on down, buy YouTube's homepage for the entire duration of um, pre-election, the days leading up to the election, election day. I'm not sure what the best answer is. I'm not a policymaker, but there's a few answers that uh, different communities of people are pushing that I think are very interesting and worth considering. So I think the most common mainstream answer right now is something that uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren is pushing for, where you break up these companies um, or introduce some level of regulation to restrict their ability to prioritize certain types of information and operate in certain ways. Um, breaking them up also would reduce their power and their in prioritizing certain types of information and feeding that to the masses. Um, 
there's also people who, these are like way less popular ideas, but there's some interesting thinkers uh, further on the left who are, who are socialists who just believe that these are like necessary functions of capitalism and that like you would need to either nationalize these companies or have uh, private co-ops replace them that, um, or nonprofits like Wikipedia where there isn't a financial incentive. Um, a lot of people would be opposed to that for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of Americans that like don't think that that's a very good idea, but um, I think all of these uh, considerations are very interesting and can be fused in different ways to potentially create the scenarios we want. How do the folks that you interact with in reporting on disinformation, both the, the disseminators of disinformation and the folks that you mention who are trying to correct disinformation and help in a, in a way pacify or um, moderate the, the more extreme voices, uh, how do they react to um, the, the idea of breaking up the big social media companies? Um, the, the folks who are in these chat rooms, um, uh, both on the left and the right, uh, mm -hmm. is there any kind of agreement that breaking up the big social behemoths would, would be a good policy? Yeah, I think that um, probably save for some you know, extreme exceptions. This is a very bipartisan, um, sort of like post-ideological uh, point of consensus. Um, ironically enough, the people that probably benefit from these things, people like Ben Shapiro um, and, and others want these companies to be broken up. They're very critical of them, uh, both from the left and the right. Um, the right constantly calls uh, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter biased against them. Um, the left thinks that they're elevating them. Um, and everyone thinks that there needs to be some solution. There is some disagreement as to specifically how to get to these types of things. People like Ben Shapiro and, and Steven Crowder, who are, are two big right-wingers, would not advocate for nationalization, would not advocate for co-ops, worker-owned co-ops. Um, but there is this tension, Ali, right? Because yeah. there's a huge cohort of libertarian yeah. activists on the web. And so do they want to preserve the, the rights of these major companies, in other words, do they follow the Mitt Romney idea of a company has human dignity and human rights, or do they uh, come together with maybe some leftists, some liberals, and say this is out of control and, and we need to democratize and have not you know, three or four major companies and control the whole thing? I'm sure that they exist. I personally haven't come across them th that frequently. I'm, I'm sure they're out there. Um, I mean, Peter Thiel thinks like this. Peter Thiel thinks that uh, pursuing a monopoly and successfully achieving one is the absolute apex of capitalism, and he means that in a very good way. He thinks that that is an incredible thing to be able to do. Um, but I would say, by and large, I think that that's probably a fringe position at this point. I think that uh, most people, both on the fringe right are skeptical of tech companies and think they need less power. People in the mainstream right also agree with that. Same thing on the left, across all sides of it. There's, there's very few exceptions. I know you that. say you're not a policymaker, but where does that leave us practically in thinking about the future of, of digital? Yeah, in what sense, actually? I, I, in the sense that the people who are occupying the space, the yeah. users, if you will, yeah. or the readers or the viewers, they're actually not very content with the system right now, yeah. but they're still the, the cogs in the machine. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I don't know if you're a fan of Mr. Robot, the, the show. I watch it. <laughs> um, you haven't seen it? No, I should. <laughs> but I'm wondering, I, I urge you to, because I, I asked Joy Bulemwini the same thing when oh. she was on here. I said, you have to see it. I hope she's seen it now. But the, the reason is th that show um, is 
foreseeing what happens when you have the spillover from a dissatisfied populist web wanting something more. In that case, it's uh, you know, zeroing out people's debt and, uh, and taking over the banks, basically, and saying, you know, this system is not equitable. But I'm just wondering if you see there ever being a perfect storm if we don't resolve the policy issues on tech, that there's an opportunity for some massive upheaval. You know, right now, tech is really top down. Mm -hmm. In order for it to be bottom up, there has to be a revolution and it can't just be clicks and yeah. likes. And I'm wondering where that or when that may happen. So lawmakers keep telling us that we're not going to get to that because they're going to legislate on this prior. Um, but, you know, we haven't seen any movement after years of rhetoric on this. Um, if that kind of thing does happen, like, I don't. I don't know. It's been a long time in the United States, I think, since there's been massive upheaval. And it's I think a lot of people are having a hard time conceptualizing like how they know that something is bad and but they don't understand the exact mechanics of it. But you might not need to if you're just really frustrated. Um, I think other countries like France with like a history of like more quickly revolting and getting very angry, like would maybe be where these things start. But Europe also has a at the same time, Europe has better frameworks for trying to address these kinds of issues. So I'm not really... It takes sure. one deep fake... Yeah, that's true. ...to kill a nation. Yeah. And it takes one deep fake to inspire that revolt, right? I and think, one powerful enough moment. Yeah, I like where you're going, yeah. I mean, it, that could lead to um, saying we need either regulation or a new system or a better system. Uh, but you've done some reporting on deep fakes. Tell our audience what deep fakes are. We've said it before, and how they're potentially going to influence the digital economy. Yeah, um, in that sense, the deep fakes are these uh, they're algorithmically generated videos um, where basically it allows someone to take someone else's face and put it on uh, someone else's. So for example, if someone were making a deep fake, they could take footage of both of our faces um, and essentially in a weird way have algorithms compete and basically make my face overlay yours and then you could talk and it would or I could talk rather and it would look like um, you know whatever's happening on your face is actually happening on mine and it's this very interesting process um, and the, the fear is that basically like I could have a situation where my face is being used to control a video of Donald Trump's face or Jeff Bezos's face and the harm in that comes from you know let's say I have bought and I've shorted a bunch of stock of Amazon. I make a video using a fake of Jeff Bezos's face and I say, hey, you know, I'm stepping down and uh, I'm, I'm selling the company to someone who's really bad at business. And then the stock tanks, I make a bunch of money off the short position. Um, but the real concern in deep fakes is not these sort of like effects in the West and things like stock markets, which are very important, but um, in nascent and fragile democracies, which to get to your point earlier, could be a revolting point and actually has been in this uh, in this country called Gabon in, in Africa. Um, the leader, Ali Bongo, of the country disappeared for a while. People didn't know where he was. People were very curious. Um, it was being, it, it turns out that he was in poor health, but this is being hidden from the public. And then conditions about his actual health when it came out that he wasn't doing well weren't revealed. It turned out that he was out of the country. People were starting to get frustrated. Unrest was happening in the country. So uh, every year in Gabon, there's a, a presidential address that the president gives. So uh, Bongo gave the address, but 
it was very different than it normally was. It's normally a 30, 15 minute, 30 minute address. This one was two or three minutes long. Um, and and it, it appeared very stilted. He barely moved. It had a lot of characteristics that made it look like a deep fake. To this day, we're not sure if it is or isn't. Experts have told me that they could go both ways. Um, but the point is that what they also stressed was that it doesn't even matter whether or not it is because at this point, just the threat of something being a deep fake is enough to spark unrest. Um, and so people thought that this might have been a deep fake and uh, it was very critical in sparking a military coup in the country. The coup wasn't successful, but um, it's still an example of just like just the presence of this technology and like the impacts that it can have. And yeah, it's, it can lead to these potential revolutions. In, that in about. you know, developing countries, and certainly, I think, too, in developed countries. I mean, yep. on the horizon, could you foresee what, I'm, what I was hinting at in an, a deep fake that has more societal repercussions than a single stock? Even if it is a deep fake and it's from a company or a government, like you're saying, we don't know necessarily whether or not it's authentic. So it may not be that someone is hijacking a verified Twitter account or Facebook page. It may be that it's intentional. This is what you're saying about the African example, right? I mean, how or can we be prepared for intentional deep fakes arriving at our doorstep from being produced by malevolent, malevolent parties that are intent on disinforming us? So I think in some cases we will be ready in the sense that we have uh, a freer information ecosystem where we can debunk these kinds of things. In countries like Gabon, uh, the government can control the flow of information. But that being said, even the freest media can account for time. So you have to clean up the mess of a deep fake in real time. And if someone puts out a deep fake and the press can't do their job or verify it or, or get things done quickly enough, it, that can have massive implication that can't be reversed. If someone were to put out a deep fake on election day or something like that um, and you know have all of these votes go in uh, a different direction in a specific county in Wisconsin and have the uh, person who wins that go into win the presidency, like even if it's a very small uh, error, a small aberration, that could have a massive effect on the fate of the entire country. So you're totally correct. And I, there is a reality I can see. I don't know if this would actually be the case, but if Facebook and Twitter don't do anything to stop this, um, maybe there is a reality where people get frustrated and like these companies letting these things happen on their platforms and people do get mad and potentially augur some sort of social upheaval over this. Is the situation so serious that every board of elections ought to have a data scientist who is prepared to forensically analyze these kinds of situations. I think that that would be great. Um, it's also important to note too that even in, even if you have that too, you need to have a way to get information out rapidly because sometimes you won't even need a data forensics person to be able to look at these kinds of things because there'll be a very obviously faked video that won't be deep faked, it'll just be edited. Um, a great example of this is the drunk, infamous drunk Nancy Pelosi video, which is just a video of her speaking slowed down with the caption of, oh, Nancy Pelosi is drunk. She wasn't. She was totally fine. Um, but, and people believed it, even though it was debunked immediately. It's just, it, I... And to this day, some people do. Facebook and Twitter have permitted it to stay up yeah. as a video posted by many verified handles. and Exactly, and it's... I think YouTube is a bit more stringent policy, and I think YouTube uh, will um, remove uh, explicitly like fake videos. But even then, all of these platforms have loopholes, and there's no clear answers to how these things get resolved. And that's probably the scariest part: is that um, 
no one, even these supposed masters of the universe, have a clear way out for anyone. We hosted the directors of the counter-extremism project, and the one campaign that has been moderately successful in removing content from YouTube is uh, propaganda from radical jihadists, not white supremacists. They have made some inroads with white supremacists, but uh, how would you assess right now YouTube's, the adequacy of YouTube's response to white supremacy and racist content on YouTube? I think it's very easy to say that these companies, YouTube included, have not done enough. Um, YouTube has taken some positive steps this past week. Um, prior to this recording, um, they took down Nick Fuentes' account. Nick Fuentes is uh, sort of the next generation of um, these sorts of, uh, I guess, like interesting white nationalists. He's, he's really good at understanding all of these companies' terms of service, knowing exactly how to step up to the line and not go over them, but still spread this sort of dangerous anti-Semitic ideology. But he will code it in irony or code it in jokes or like not exactly say things that will get him banned. And it's a positive sign that YouTube is like recognizing that people flirting with their, violating their terms of service um, don't deserve to be on the platform either. Um, so YouTube's hopefully going in the right direction, but I mean, there's still a lot of other stuff they need to deal with, Facebook included, Twitter included too. Ali, really a pleasure hearing from you today. Thanks yeah. for your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time for a thoughtful excursion into the world of ideas. Until then, keep an open mind. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Anne Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.